I wanted to start off the episode by telling you about the very first patient that I discharged against medical advice. This was a young man who had been admitted overnight, um, had a history of IV drug use, heroin specifically, and came in just looking really lousy, febrile, shaking. They drew blood cultures in the emergency room and started him on broad spectrum antibiotics. And I met him first thing in the morning. I saw him first for two reasons. One of them was that I was paged by the micro lab that he was growing four out of four bottles uh, with a gram positive bacteria. And second, because I had also gotten paged from the nurse um, who was telling me that the patient was dressed and ready to go. I walked into his room and essentially explained my concerns, um, saying that I was was very worried that he might have endocarditis, might be growing bacteria in his bloodstream that were seeding his heart valves. But he told me quite calmly that he had to go. I asked why. He said that his mother had gotten into some legal trouble and he needed to go take care of her. But I kind of suspected from the yawning from the erection that he was withdrawing from heroin. I offered him some methadone uh, to try to see if that would convince him to stay, but he declined my offer. He left against medical advice, and I don't know what happened to him. Welcome back to At the Bedside, the segment of Core IM that discusses common ethical issues in clinical care and questions that fall outside the traditional realm of evidence-based medicine. I'm Margot, a third-year internal medicine resident at NYU. I'm Jaffer, a hematology oncology fellow at UCLA. And I'm Tamar, currently pursuing research in bioethics. On today's episode, we're going to discuss a topic that comes up frequently in our practice, discharges against medical advice, or AMA. Many of you listening have had to discharge a patient against medical advice, and like us, you've probably come away from those conversations with some moral discomfort, or at least frustration. And we wanted to quickly acknowledge here that questions of capacity often weigh heavily on if and how a patient leaves the hospital against medical advice. Recognizing that it's a sometimes complicated topic, we're hoping to dedicate an upcoming episode to discussing capacity assessment. For today's discussion, we'll focus on patients who have demonstrated capacity in making their own decisions. So we're speaking to Dr. David Alfandre, whose research largely focuses on AMA discharges. He's an associate professor at NYU's Departments of Medicine and Public Health and a healthcare ethicist with the VA's National Center for Ethics in Healthcare. We'll talk to him about different approaches in these situations and then discuss some truths and myths about discharges against medical advice. Let's begin with some of the statistics. AMA discharges only make up about 1-2% to of all hospital discharges, but these patients are particularly likely to be from more vulnerable populations. Right. So um, one interesting uh, study suggested that the same factors that are associated with AMA discharge are associated with people having difficulty accessing care. So... um, you know, we see patients who are poor, who aren't insured. Um, those factors are a risk factor for for being discharged AMA, but it's also a risk factor for actually being able to engage in care and be able to access care uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. As I was reviewing this topic, I found a great paper. It was a retrospective study of over 300,000 discharges from 2002 to 2011. 
that found that AMA discharges were highest among patients who were young, male, had Medicare or Medicaid, or who were uninsured, and also specifically people being admitted to the hospital for reasons relating to mental health or substance use disorder. And this, for me, this is such a large part of the frustration with AMA discharges. By definition, these are the patients that we don't think are ready to walk out the door. It's really not surprising then that they do, in fact, have worse outcomes. You know, they're less likely to attend follow-up appointments, and studies show that their 30-day readmission and mortality rates can be twice as high as patients who stay in the hospital. It's easy to make a lot of generalizations when I hear this kind of demographic information, uh, but I always wonder, how do these statistics apply to the patient in front of me? What an individual patient is going to be interested in as far as needing to leave the hospital, you really have to individualize. So you have to talk to the patient. For some patients, it, it might be that there's a social service payment, but others, there may be a pet in the home. There may be competing uh, priorities that they have, and that could be anything. It could be a child in the home. It could be an older parent in the home. It, whatever it is, it's a competing priority. And so that's really um, what you're trying to uncover when you talk to patients is what else is going on that's competing for their need to be in the hospital. So thinking about some of the groups mentioned in that study, for example, let's take people in their 30s and 40s who have higher rates of AMA discharges than other age groups. It makes sense. These are ages where people are very likely to have important obligations to others in their lives. Children, a parent, a partner. So they choose to prioritize these obligations over the hospitalization. Similarly, unfair stigmatization or biases are applied to people admitted for reasons relating to mental health or substance use. Sometimes these patients have faced difficult interactions with clinicians in the past. This is all really important context when we consider why someone may then be more likely to decide to leave the hospital early. Okay, so we've got a pretty clear sense of why these statistics are important to talk about. Understanding which patients leave AMA helps us understand why they leave AMA. And hopefully down the line, that'll help us find ways to address the needs of these more vulnerable populations. But there's a whole other category that I want to make sure that we touch on. It's not just patient-specific factors that are causing AMA discharges. We work within a complex healthcare system. We're starting to gather more information about that, but what we're finding is urban hospitals, hospitals that are non-teaching hospitals, those tend to have more AMA discharges, which is an important point when you think about that it's not simply related just to patient factors, but there are other what we call sort of non-patient health system provider factors that may contribute to the AMA discharge. So we as the clinicians have a large role in this too. That's important information to consider, right? Um, is it the, um, the gender of the healthcare provider, the age of the healthcare provider, the number of years out of practice, the specialty? I mean, there's a lot of things that may be, again, just associated with it, but those are important questions to ask um, because if there are related to healthcare providers, then that's where we intervene, Right. We talked about the patient related factors that are associated, but what if there are healthcare provider factors that are associated? Because those would be important to find out about and intervene to try and mitigate the adverse outcomes. These factors are really interesting to consider. And again, it's a topic that we don't think about quite as often. There's a bit of a gap in the literature here, but there are a few small qualitative studies on the topic. One of these studies was back in 2010 the authors reached out to patients who had left the hospital AMA 
and talked with them about their reasons for leaving. For some patients, it was a breakdown in communication, which has absolutely happened with some of the patients that I have taken care of. The intern tells the patient one thing, and the consultant comes by and says something else. And then by the time the attending rounds, the whole plan has changed again. Other patients felt dissatisfied with their doctor's bedside manner, or felt that their pain was being undertreated, or they felt stigmatized because they had a history of drug use. Again, all of these reasons really resonate with my experience. A study in 2016 that Dr. Alfandre was a part of also found that patients often wanted to leave AMA because they disagreed with the discharge plan. They didn't want to be discharged to a skilled nursing facility, for example. Other patients left AMA because they were frustrated by certain aspects of their medical care, like being kept NPO for a procedure or being kept in a contact or an isolation room. Yeah, Margot, all these situations you're describing sound super familiar to me as well. And I guess this highlights another reason why it's so important to communicate clearly with our patients. And I do know that's a silly thing to say. I mean, we all try to be clear, but it's interesting to think of this as a kind of small possible intervention for making AMA discharges just a bit less uneasy. It of course won't come close to solving every difficulty, but for some patients, Maybe if I push myself to be more clear or more explicit about why I'm doing what I'm doing in the medical plan, maybe I can prevent even just a few misunderstandings that would have led to premature discharges. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with that in mind, we need to figure out how to move forward towards a good or at least better way to have these conversations with patients in these situations. I feel like we just have to start by admitting that we it can be exceptionally frustrating when a patient insists on leaving AMA. Remember, there's the socially sanctioned role of a physician is to provide care for patients, you know, regardless, right? So, you know, AMA discharges sort of push up against that. There, it's, it's not uncommon um, to find practitioners frustrated, sometimes even angry with patients that choose to leave the hospital over the recommendation of the providers. So then how else do you think about this? I mean, I, I think most of the time patients just want to be heard. They want to have a conversation with their healthcare provider. They want to have their concerns or their needs addressed. Um, and sometimes sometimes that's the only way for them to have that conversation is to, is to assert that they're leaving the hospital. So it's it can be inconvenient, but I often say that it's an opportunity. Often when I say that, how <laughs> my trainees often sort of roll their eyes and say, oh, great, another opportunity to have a conversation about AMA discharges. But that's really what it is, right? The patient, in the only way they know how, is trying to say, I have something really important that I need to do, or I have something really important to tell my healthcare provider, and this is how I'm saying it. So one sort of cognitive restructuring is to think about when a patient is asking to leave AMA, it's an opportunity to better connect with the patient about their their needs, what's important to them, and often to convince them to stay because that's often the case. That's a really helpful way of thinking about it. Here we've got a conflict, but that conflict ends up being a way for both sides to talk about what really matters to them. It ends up being a way for both sides to understand each other better and hopefully improve care. I really enjoy these conversations. I, I truly see them as opportunities. I really find the ability to work with patients who are 
frustrated and concerned and wishing to decline recommended care. I, I find those interesting uh, clinical challenges. And I hope I can convince other physicians that if they see it that way as well, they, it may be you know, just like a, an interesting EKG or an interesting chest X-ray, easier to sort of engage um, with the process. So where do we start these conversations? Really, it comes down to having that shared decision-making conversation with the patient and that means finding out what's important to them, what their competing priorities are, what else they're concerned about in their life. And that means, quite honestly, just empathizing with the position that they're in. Um, it's not easy to understand, necessarily, um, the financial and social and emotional pressures that some patients are undergoing. Um, but that's really what this process requires. Um, it's about sitting down with the patient and finding out what is of concern that's interfering with their ability to make decisions that are going to promote their health. If it's a beginning medical student, they'll say, yeah, I understand AMA discharges. Patients have the right to make bad decisions. And I'll say, well, that's not quite how I would describe that. They, the competent patients have the right to decline recommended treatment, and sometimes that means not promoting their health. But it's not bad um, necessarily because it's meeting some other need that they have. And the more open you are and non-judgmental to what those needs might be, first of all, the more likely you are to hear it from the patient, the more likely they are to trust you and be able to confide in you about what those concerns are. Um, and then the more likely you are able to identify resources that are directed towards meeting those needs. You know, the way he describes it, it sounds wonderful, but I feel like it's so much easier said than done. If you go in and you're angry and frustrated and overworked, at least the last two variables probably accurately describe most <laughs> night floats, right? They're getting paged, you know, every couple of minutes, they're running around, they're caring for a lot of patients, um, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed in those situations. So it's hard to to have these conversations and um, take the time to make sure that they're getting the information they need from patients. But often, you know, a short amount of time invested at the beginning will save a lot of time later on in the course of the patient's care by developing that relationship, creating a treatment alliance, um, developing trust, um, and getting good information from the patient so that you can um, develop a care plan that actually meets their needs. I think one interesting study from oh, probably 30 or 40 years ago showed that the more likely clinicians were to establish expectations early in the hospitalization, the lower the likelihood of AMA discharge. So this totally gets back into what we were talking about earlier, the critical role of communication, of being connected and transparent with our patients. Uh, but honestly, I know that when I get busy or frustrated, and being an intern on Nightflow was the perfect example of that. When I'm frustrated and busy, all I wanted them to say is, I know I can die, and then sign my piece of paper so I can move on to my you know, next minor crisis of the night. When I come on service, I go over very clearly that really our primary ethical and legal obligation is to ensure that the patient is making an informed refusal of care, right? Or there's an informed consent discussion about the patient choosing to decline recommended treatment. And that's all they need to do. Um, once they do that, then they need to document that process within the record. But as soon as I tell house officers that, uniformly, sort of their shoulders relax a little bit, and they nod in agreement, and they say, oh, okay, that's really easy. I say, you don't need to have them fill out the AMA discharge form. As a matter of fact, 
that's probably just going to antagonize the patient. It's extra work for you. It's never been shown to actually promote higher quality risk communication. And often patients feel like the process is more stigmatized when there's an AMA discharge form. So there's another holdover from a more paternalistic era but we see it in lots of different health systems. Uh, And that's so important to remember. It's really not about the form at all. It's not some golden document that keeps me out of jail. You just do your best. You know, you have a real talk and document it somewhere. Let's take a second here to talk about the form. Because I know, at least for me, that piece of paper feels like the symbol of an AMA discharge. Dr. Alfandre outlines our ethical obligations to the patient, which is a thorough and empathetic informed consent discussion. The AMA form, on the other hand, addresses the legal aspects of the case. It's essentially an attempt to make sure the discussion includes the information that the clinician would need to protect themselves legally if the case should ever go to court. AMA forms are different in every hospital, but generally involve three parts. The first part says that the patient has demonstrated capacity to leave AMA. The second part records the key pieces of the informed consent discussion, which is what Dr. Alfandre has been walking us through. The clinician needs to communicate her concerns, the intended workup and potential treatments, and all of the potential risks of leaving, and the patient needs to understand what was explained. The third part of an AMA is that discussion is documented in the chart which for many people means the AMA form itself. But Dr. Alfandre is discussing the alternative, which is documenting in the EMR. This form can be helpful. A study of emergency room physicians found that introducing an AMA form improved the quality of physician documentation of AMA discharges. But the form isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. It can't replace a conversation. There was a lawsuit about this in 1991 called Battenfield versus Gregory, in which a patient sued two doctors for delay in the treatment of her ruptured appendix. Essentially, the patient had just given birth and had a fever, elevated heart rate, and high white blood cell count concerning for an infection. But she wanted to return home to be with her family. She was advised that while the doctors recommended staying until she defervest, she could go home if she signed an AMA form. The jury argued against the doctors involved, saying that the doctors hadn't really explained the risks that the patient was taking by leaving early. The form wasn't enough. At the end of the day, both ethically and legally, the conversation is key. As for whether you document that with an AMA form or a note in the patient's chart, check with your local hospital's policy. So again, like so many other parts of the treatment plan, it's all about the conversation and shared decision-making. Still, when a patient leaves the hospital AMA, why does it often feel uncomfortable or difficult? I think the concept of harm reduction is sometimes challenging to accept. I, I hear from a lot of providers, well, if I don't discharge patient AMA, they're not getting the right message. They're getting the message that it's okay to use drugs, or it's okay to forego their health. Um, And that's not really the primary philosophy behind harm reduction. Patients can get really frustrated in the hospital, but when you sort of think about the arc of their provision of care, um, the goal is to keep them engaged with the healthcare system. And so if they choose to leave the hospital now, that doesn't mean that they won't come back sooner. And so your goal is to give them as best care that you can and care that they're willing to accept. 
This was really helpful to hear. It makes me think of when I come up with what feels like the perfect discharge plan medically. You know, this patient, she's going to finish her IV antibiotics and then leave the hospital on Tuesday to a skilled nursing facility. But if that plan doesn't work in her life, then I was misunderstanding what would be perfect. Instead, I need to find some sort of compromise between what the patient needs medically and what actually fits with her motivations and priorities. So it's not a failure or a breakdown. It's helping someone get to a goal that works for them. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this. You know, just keep them engaged and this person has a chance to pick up where they left off on that hospitalization. We'll get them next time. And you know, to that end, just because someone is leaving AMA doesn't mean we should forego making some kind of discharge plan for them. For example, we may want them to stay on IV antibiotics for four weeks, but if they're not willing to do that, we're obligated to find some kind of oral regimen that can help treat their condition, even if we don't think it's ideal, and give them follow-up appointments with primary care and infectious disease specialists. Just because they're not conforming to the best medical evidence doesn't mean that we turn our backs on them. And, you know, to the extent that we do that, we should be careful to look at how we might actually be trying to punish that patient for not agreeing with our plans. Of course, we always need to think about safety of our compromised discharge plans. You know, for instance, I wouldn't be willing to give benzos or barbiturates to someone leaving AMA during alcohol withdrawal, just given the risks of combining substance abuse with continued drinking. But it's still our ethical obligation to try and offer what we can where we can. One of the most dangerous pitfalls is when we let AMA designations itself get in the way of this and use it as an easy excuse for not working with that patient to find other solutions. General premise of the argument is is that we're finding that AMA discharges don't haven't been demonstrated to advance a patient's care in any in any um, in any evidence based way, and we know that there's evidence of stigmatization and reduced access to care um, for these patients. So, from an ethics perspective, there's really minimal benefit. Um, or no identified benefit, and there's emerging evidence of harm. So these situations don't need to put a stop to our trying to provide the best possible care. It's just redefining it and asking, what's the next best way to take care of this patient now? Right. And that also leads us to addressing an important myth about AMA discharges. I've heard this, and I know my colleagues have as well. Is it true that if a patient leaves AMA, his insurance won't cover the hospitalization? Sometimes this is used as a rationale for convincing someone to remain inpatient. We dug into the data on this, and there is a great study from 2012 that combed through the records of over 46,000 admissions. About 1% of those admissions ended in an AMA discharge, and when they looked through those records, they found a total of about 453 patients who left AMA who had some form of health insurance. While some of the claims ended up being rejected for administrative reasons, such as submitting the bill too late, not a single one was rejected because the patient left AMA. Wow, I've been lying to people about this for a long time. And to be honest, I've tried to leverage it to keep people in the hospital. You know, I almost want it to be true. But that's just me trying to financially bully the patient into doing what I want them to do with their hospitalization. Uh, but that's, you know, that's a really helpful myth for us to debunk because I think it gets thrown around a lot. So I, I really look forward to sounding smart the next time this comes up. We're very thankful to Dr. Alfandre for taking us through trying to reframe discharges against medical advice as opportunities to discuss our patients' competing priorities and a way to focus on harm reduction and shared decision-making. 
We hopefully also debunked a couple of the larger myths that loom over AMA discharges. With that, we'll turn it back to Dr. Alfandre for some take-home points on the strategies for doing all of this effectively. Hopefully, I can provide sort of a general framework to think about the problem. Again, given some of the values that we've talked about about promoting shared decision-making and harm-reducing alternatives. So um, like you said, the first thing, I divide them up into behavioral and cognitive strategies. The first thing is from a behavioral standpoint is involve others. Right. And that means the patient's family, the patient's friends, the patient's healthcare provider, the patient's primary care doctor. Involve other people who the patient knows and trusts. Because if this is the first time you're meeting the patient, they're unlikely to trust you or necessarily want to agree with what you're saying. The second thing is to maximize the amount of decisions the patient can control. I had an interesting conversation with a psychiatrist about this, and he talked about making the unconscious no conscious. So patients may be just saying no because I want out of here. They haven't thought through the consequences like the case you described. They haven't thought through all the alternatives. They're just like, I'm done with being here. I've spent X number of nights not sleeping, getting woken up every couple of hours, the person in my room is screaming, I'm uncomfortable, right? They're not necessarily thinking through all the risks associated with leaving. They're just thinking, I'll be more comfortable at home. And so you want to slow down that process, but also help the patient control whatever they can within the hospital environment. So sometimes when you go to the bedside and the patient says, I'm ready to leave, you find out what's on their mind, what their concerns are, and you find out that they don't want to get their vitals checked at two in the morning. So you you give them that opportunity to control that about their healthcare environment. So you maximize anything you can about the patient's experience in the hospital. The third I think we've talked about is empathizing, and that requires practice. So as you're walking into the room, yes, you're getting, you have four pages backed up, and now you're running to the bedside to talk to this patient. Remind yourself, all right, I'm not going to argue with the patient. Patients want to be heard, right? They don't necessarily want to be right. If you remind yourself, all right, I'm going to empathize with this patient, I'm not going to argue, you'll often find out what's going on with the patient, what the patient's concerned about. It'll also calm you down a little bit. You won't feel as activated and um, antagonistic. Um, so that's an, that's the third point. The last one is, as we've said before, rely on trusted legal advice. So if you don't know, ask your attending, hey, what, what's, what are my legal obligations here? And once you know what those are, it's easier to relax. It's easier to focus on the care of the patient. And then the cognitive strategies, first is conflict as opportunity, which we talked about. Seeing a patient's desire to leave AMA is an opportunity to have a conversation about what's important to the patient, what's on the patient's mind, what's concerning to the patient, right? I mean, much of the work of interacting and aligning with patients is finding out what's important to them. And sometimes that's how, um, that's how they tell us. They tell us that they're ready to leave. So see that, again, as an opportunity rather than as a challenge to your authority. The second is uh, understanding and accepting patients with substance use disorder. I bring that up specifically because so many more patients with substance use disorders are likely to leave against medical advice. So the more training you have, the more comfort you have in caring for patients like this, the easier it is for you to, to, to provide high-quality care and focus on their needs. And then the last part is decide for yourself whether or not you want to discharge the patient AMA. That's a choice that I leave to the individual healthcare provider. I'm not here to say you should never discharge a patient AMA. I'm simply saying, think about whether or not it's going to advance the patient's care. Think about the harms associated with the designation. Again, this isn't, this is about the designation of the discharge, both in the record and in discussing with the patient. 
I always tell trainees and other physicians, this isn't about not recommending that the patient remain hospitalized. This is about letting them know their options, letting them know the risks, the benefits, and if so, recommending that they stay in the hospital because that would promote their health. But taking it that next step farther and formalizing the decision, documenting into the record, using an AMA discharge form, those have never been shown to advance a patient's care. So think, consider for yourself, like other high-value care decisions, is what I'm doing actually advancing the patient's care or is it actually harming the patient potentially? Those are the main strategies. A big thank you to Dr. Alfandre for those take-home points. We have covered a lot in this episode, our ethical and legal obligations to our patients, some strategies for meeting them halfway, and a framework for structuring a conversation that can help mitigate some of the conflicts that often come up when a patient has one foot out the door. We're planning an episode to explore an issue that many of us find challenging, the capacity assessment. It is such a nuanced topic that it really needed a whole episode to itself, so stay tuned. We also wanted to acknowledge that even in the best of circumstances, AMA discussions don't always go according to plan. We think that the framework outlined in this episode is really helpful and has the potential to improve the therapeutic relationship or the safety of an AMA discharge or even convince a patient to stay. But sometimes in the face of it all, you're going to strike out. While I was researching and recording this episode on how to have a good AMA conversation, I had several patients leave. And that was pretty humbling. So clinical medicine can be challenging and wonderful in all of these kind of difficult ways. And at the end of the day, just keep on trying your best. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. We know these topics can stir up more questions than answers. And we look forward to hearing more about your experiences and reflections on AMA discharges. Please continue the conversation with us online at our Facebook page, on Twitter, or email us directly. Find show notes and contact information for us on our website, coreimpodcast.com slash contact. If you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you use. It helps other people find us. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what we're doing right and how we can improve. And as always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Finally, special thanks to all our collaborators in this episode, our wonderful editor, Julius Kubij, our illustrator, Michael Shen, our music composers, Gabe Stern and Peter Kendall of Hickory Collective, endless technical support from Harit Shaw, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.